The following message was given by Philip Bailey, a pastor's college student and a guest preacher at Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. Now our speaker for today. Uh, So Sovereign Grace, the denomination we're a part of, we do have a pastor's college, which is a one-year intensive, and it is intense, intensive program. Basically, each week, you're doing what normally would be done in a semester worth of classes. So it's nine to five every day, papers, tests, all of these things, learning biblical languages, all of this. And um, so I went through that. It's a wonderful program we have. And part of the curriculum is having uh, the guys learn to preach, and they get assignments to go out to churches and preach. And so I was very eager for us to get to have a pastor's college student come. So we have Philip Bailey. So Philip, you can come on up. Philip Bailey, let's welcome Philip. So Philip is from Marlton. He lives in Marlton, New Jersey. No, he doesn't live in, the church is in Marlton, New Jersey. He does not live in Marlton, New Jersey. Um, his family, right? Your parents were actually part of the original church plan of that church from Covenant Fellowship, where we were planted from, and that was back in the 90s, mm-hmm. you said? Yeah, so, um, and actually his mother and grandmother are here with us uh, today as well, and so we're glad to have them. Uh, Philip is great. I've enjoyed getting to know him over the past few days. Uh, I have been told by many people he's a very bright guy. I've seen that come out as well. Uh, I've had a chance to read over his, uh, what he's going to be sharing with us all today through God's word and um, do believe the Lord has just blessed him with insight and wisdom. This is his first Sunday morning preaching that he's done, so uh, encourage him afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I asked him, I was like, is it okay if I share that? I don't want to, you know, to be, you know, you go to restaurants and they have like the tag, like I'm new, you know, and it's like, I don't know how people feel about that. And so, but I have full confidence he's going to do a great job. So I just want to pray for you. Yeah. And um, Father, we thank you just for the way that you take care of your church, the way you raise up leaders, um, the way that you work in um, young men to preach and proclaim your word. And I thank you for Philip, I thank you for his heart to serve you and for placing that on his heart um, early on in his life and that you have carried and sustained that vision that he has for pastoral ministry uh, and for proclaiming your word. I pray this morning that you just fill him with your spirit, that we would hear clearly the message you have for us from your word. We pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 All right. Am I on? Okay, perfect. Well, um, Nick, are you okay if I grab this for the Bible? Oh, sorry. Yep. I told him I would do that. <laughs> perfect. Sorry, let me just get... <laughs> well, it is so good to be here with you this morning. Um, I'll start by just asking you to open your Bibles to Matthew 7. We're going to be in verses 1 through 6. Um, if you're new to the Bible, you can find Matthew's Gospel about two-thirds of the way through... Um, And you probably also have a table of contents at the front of your Bible that can direct you there. And and once you get there, you'll look for the big number seven, uh, which stands for the chapters, and we'll be right at the beginning of that. Well, while you're getting there, I just want to say again how excited I am to be here with you guys this morning. Um, As Nick had said, uh, my wife and I and our son, Fitz, who's almost one now, um, my wife Heather, who's my favorite person in the world, we, we all moved to Louisville 
from South Jersey uh, in August uh, for this 10-month Pastors College class. And um, it's been a joy. We've loved our time there. But you don't realize how much you miss the Philadelphia area until you're gone for 10 months. And so it's so nice to be able to use the word hoagie and not get blank stares. Um, it's, it's great to uh, be able to talk about water ice and have people know what you mean. I didn't realize this, but no one calls it water ice outside of the Philadelphia area. So um, that's been awesome. Um, and then, you know, the word John is basically permanently embedded in my vocabulary, and people look at you like you have three heads if you use that outside of the Philadelphia area. So it's, it's good to be back here, and I'm excited to be back. Um, but I'm also excited to, to be participating here with you guys. Um, as, as Nick had said, uh, I've been a member um, for my whole life of the church in Marlton that partners with you in Sovereign Grace churches, um, and we're currently a part of Sovereign Grace Louisville while we're in Louisville. Um, and so I get the opportunity to bring greetings from both of those churches who are partnering with you, and I can speak from um, personal knowledge. I just touched base with all the guys at, at Marlton this weekend at the regional assembly that, that Nick had talked about, and I talked back and forth with the elders at Louisville. They are so excited to be partnering with you, and um, they wanted me to bring greetings and welcome you guys, and they're just excited to have a gospel-preaching church in Malvern to partner with. And, and I have the unique privilege of being excited as well because for, you know, I have personal connections here. My grandparents lived in Malvern for a few years, and my cousins live here now, so I'm just grateful for the opportunity to be partnering with more churches in the Philadelphia area, preaching the gospel, um, being gospel outposts. Um, so with that being said, if you're in your Bibles in, in Matthew 7, I will read the text together this morning, and then we'll pray and get into it. This is God's word, Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Verse 6, do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We are desperate for you. We know that there is nothing that we say, nothing that we plan, um, nothing that we sing um, that will have any significance if you do not work. Your spirit does not empower us this morning. Um, so Father, I'm desperate for you. I know I need you. Regardless of all the work I've put in, unless you move um, nothing meaningful will happen. And so, Father, we pray that through your Spirit you would move this morning. Um, Lord, your word is said to be like a hammer that shatters the hardness of our hearts. Um, it's like life-giving rain that transforms the thorny and, and thistly places in our heart into places of abundant and flowering life. It, it's like a, a sword that pierces our hearts to the deepest places of our souls, and so, Father, I pray that you would be doing those things this morning in my heart, in our hearts, as we sit under your word, that you would be searching 
you would be piercing, you would be shattering the hard places and changing the stony parts of our hearts to be transformed into places that glorify you and treasure you above all things. So Father, we pray that you would do this, um, working through your spirit and the pages of your word this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, almost 500 years ago, in 1543, a man wrote a book that would change the world. His name was Nicholas Copernicus, and his book had a very short, sweet, and to-the-point title. Not actually. Everything written in that era was long and a real mouthful. Um, His book was titled On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres. Copernicus's work would not be widely recognized or adopted for over a hundred years, but when it was, it changed the world. And I mean that literally, it literally rearranged the solar system. For most of recorded history, scientists had thought that the earth is at the center of the universe and that the sun and other planets revolved around it. What Copernicus proposed and was later accepted was that the sun is at the center of the solar system. And the earth and other planets revolve around it, which is how we understand it today. Once this heliocentric model was adopted, it went off like a bomb throughout the scientific community. It was actually known as the Copernican Revolution because it changed so much of how we understand and view the world around us. It turns out that when you change what is at the center of your world, there are massive implications for how you relate to it. Our understandings of the seasons, of days, gravity, basic physics, astrophysics, it all completely changed. And today, in the Sermon on the Mount, we see something similar. Here, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has placed God at the center of our world. And whether that's the solar system or your life, there are massive implications when you change what is at the center. And that's really what the Sermon on the Mount is. It is a God-centered way of living. Jesus has walked through a number of these implications as he's gone through the Sermon on the Mount, from how we relate to our enemies to how we relate to material possessions. And today, in this passage, he's going to show us how having God at the center of our lives changes how we relate to other people. Specifically, we're going to see that our relationships with others must be governed by God and aimed at his glory. And I'll say that one more time because I think it's the single most important thing we will see today. Our relationships with others must be governed by God and aimed at his glory. And there are many different ways that this God-centered view of life affects our relationships with others. Jesus has already talked about many of them in the previous two chapters, Matthew 5 and 6. However, here, he focuses on how God's relationship with us should govern our relationships with others and how his glory should be both the goal and guide for those relationships. So, in short, a God-centered way of living means God-governed and God-glorifying relationships with others. This morning, we're going to see three different ways that this God-governed and God-glorifying perspective on relationships affects how we deal with others. And that brings us to the first way and our first point. So first, God will deal with us the way that we deal with others. And we see this in verses 1 and 2. 
Jesus began his teaching in this passage by drawing a connection between how we relate to others and how God relates to us. So in verse 1, Jesus says, Judge not, that you be not judged. Now, I think typically when we hear this, the first question that we ask when reading the passage is, what does Jesus actually mean here? Is he prohibiting all types of judgments, right? We can't evaluate others at all, or just certain kinds. Now, I think the answer that our culture would give here is pretty clear, right? They love to use Jesus' words here as a baseball bat to just smash any type of critical assessment others make about them, right? You, you might have heard someone say, don't judge me, or only God can judge me. Those are popular phrases. They really use this verse to kind of steamroll any type of negative evaluation. In fact, I think that's safe to say that this is probably America's favorite verse in the Bible for this reason, right? You don't have to look very hard to find cultural references to this. Both Tupac and Bob Marley had songs inspired by this passage, and more recently, Miley Cyrus, in her song, We Can't Stop, reminds people to remember, only God can judge you. And that's pretty ironic, because if you know that song, it's about as far from Jesus' teaching as you can get. But our culture loves this verse. So the question that arises, is Jesus putting a blanket ban, right, on evaluating others and assessing situations like our culture would think? And the short answer is no. Although Jesus simply says, judge not, what he is really saying is don't judge other people sinfully. Don't criticize them judgmentally. He's prohibiting sinfully condemning others and having unfairly critical attitudes towards them. We see this in the rest of our passage. In verses 3 through 5, Jesus doesn't just tell the disciple, don't worry about the speck in your brother's eye. He tells him to rightly position himself so that he can actually help others. And as we'll see in verse 6, Jesus is talking about pigs and dogs in a way that represents certain types of people. And so he wouldn't tell us to distinguish between these different types of people if he didn't want us to stop uh, making judgments altogether. Jesus is only prohibiting sinfully critical judgments here. And he goes on to clarify what he means with an explanation in the rest of verses 1 and 2. In his explanation, he first tells us why we shouldn't do this. He says, the purpose behind this command is that so that we will not be judged for our sinful judgments. While Jesus doesn't explicitly say who will be judging us, it's clear from the context that God is the judge in view. In fact, we've already seen a very similar reciprocal relationship between our actions towards others and God's actions towards us earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, 14 through 15, just after the Lord's Prayer, we read, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So I think you can kind of see what Jesus is saying here. He's saying God will forgive us the way we forgive others in that passage in Matthew 6. In our passage, we see the same exact pattern, right? God will deal with us how we deal with others. After this, Jesus goes on to explain how God will judge us. In verse 2, he says that with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, because of the play on words, most commentators believe this verse, and especially the second half of it, was probably a common proverb that Jesus uses to underscore his point. You can kind of imagine ancient Jewish mothers repeating this to their children when they were tempted towards selfishness or criticizing others unfairly. The point is clear. The standard that you apply to others 
will be the standard God will apply to you. One translation puts it this way, and I think this is helpful. It says, the measure you give will be the measure you get. So verse 1 is not a blanket ban on all evaluations of others, but simply a command not to judge others in a way we would not want to be judged ourselves. Here's what John Stott says in commenting on Matthew 7. He says this, If we pose as judges, we cannot plead ignorance of the law we claim to be able to administer. If we enjoy occupying the bench, we must not be surprised to find ourselves in the dock. So what he's saying is if we enjoy sitting in the position of judge, we can't be surprised when we are sitting in the position of the one being judged. Paul makes a similar point in Romans 2.1. He says, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And I think it's important to just take a step back and realize, like, this is a really common temptation for all of us. I mean, how many of us hear a sermon, maybe even one you've heard recently on the Sermon on the Mount, and think of someone you know and think, man, I really just wish that person was there for that sermon. They could really use this. I know that I have done that many, many times. And so we need to be aware that sinfully criticizing others is a real danger, not just for people out there, but for Jesus' disciples in his church. This is not something that only applies to to people out there, but really is a sober warning from our Savior about a danger for his disciples in their interactions with each other. One commentator puts it this way, to be quick to call others to account is to invite God to call us to account. And, And being called to account by a holy God is no laughing matter. That is a serious warning. So let's take a step back and think, how do we interact with other people? Is your attitude towards others marked more by self-righteous fault-finding or by grace-filled discernment? Do we show the same level of grace to others that we have received lavishly from God? Do you judge others charitably or constantly assume the worst? No one wants others, whether God or other people, to assume the worst about them. But many times, if we're honest with ourselves, we do just that. We assume the worst. When someone makes a comment to you that is ambiguous or could be interpreted in multiple different ways, do you assume that they're being unkind or rude or do you give them the benefit of the doubt? When you hear or read someone say something you disagree with, whether that's in person or on social media, do you write them off as calloused, foolish, or naive? Or do you assume that maybe you misunderstood them? Or, or maybe your opinion is the one that needs to be corrected? The reality is we have all judged others in ways that we wouldn't want to be judged by God. But he makes it clear that we need to pursue wise, humble, and loving discernment. Otherwise, we will be heaping God's righteous judgment on ourselves. God will deal with us the way that we deal with others. After Jesus explains his command to judge not, in verses 1 and 2, he moves on to an example in verses 3 through 5, which supports and expands this command to judge not. And that brings us to our second point, and the second way that a God-centered way of life affects our relationships. This is point number two. 
humbly examining ourselves positions us to deal with others. This is in verses three through five. Um, In this example, Jesus points out that if we want to evaluate and interact with others in a way that honors God, we must start by humbly examining ourselves first. Here, Jesus gives us a picture of two disciples interacting with each other. And we know that because notice they call each other brother in the text. Really, um, this is a caricature, and I think it's obvious. I mean, a guy's literally walking around with a two-by-four sticking out of his face. But Jesus is painting in absurdities, and really, this whole passage is filled with just terrifying ironies, right? Earlier, we see Jesus basically say, oh, like, you want to pull out this little measuring stick and measure up other people? Well, you better duck, because God's got a big old yardstick, and it's coming to you. And here, we see a disciple with a two-by-four in his eye trying to do surgery on someone else. It's all supposed to be equal parts, ridiculous, and sobering. And this is exactly what Jesus is getting at in verse 3. It's ridiculous to see a speck in another's eye while missing the log in our own. But it's just as ridiculous to think we can accurately assess others without adequately examining ourselves. In verse 4, Jesus goes on to extend this example from a disciple simply noticing, right, you see the speck in in your brother's eye to actually attempting to remove it. Now he's saying, let me take the speck out of your eye. But again, what makes this request ridiculous is the piece of lumber remaining unlodged, unnot- or remaining lodged unnoticed in his own eye. Jesus makes exactly this point in verse 5 when he condemns the disciple who is judging others. He calls him a hypocrite, and, and that is not something that you want to be called by the Son of God. One commentator says that in Matthew's Gospel, this term describes a critic who does not criticize himself, and as a result is disastrously self-deceived. Disastrously self-deceived. And I think that is a helpful description because it draws attention to the fact that the emphasis in Jesus' story is not primarily on the disciple's assessment of his brother or the speck in his brother's eye. Instead, Jesus' focus is on the woeful inadequacy of the disciple's own self-assessment. Friends, we may see sin in other people's lives. And we may even accurately see sin in other people's lives. But what Jesus is saying is that if we are not accurately seeing the sin in our own lives, if we're not humbly examining ourselves first, we are in no position to point out the sin in others' lives or even help them remove it from their lives. Another commentator, Leon Morris, makes this point. When he says that the meaning of this passage in Matthew is not that in every case the person passing judgment is a worse sinner than the one he criticizes. Rather, it's that what he finds wrong in his brother is a small, and I'd add very, very, very small matter compared with the sin that God sees in his own life. The hyperbole, Morris writes, effectively demolishes the position of the critic in a blaze of ridicule. And I think that is a really helpful way to capture Jesus' tone, right? He is, he is obliterating the supposed moral high ground of the self-righteous critic in this example. C.J. Mahaney has said that whenever we are more aware of other sins against us than our sin against God, we're operating out of self-righteousness. As forgiven sinners, we should be people who are far more aware of our sin against God than others' sin against us. 
We should, be, we should always be people who notice the log in our own eye before we see the speck in our brother's eye. But I think if we honestly evaluate ourselves, again, how often are we in reality, the guy with the two by four, sticking out of our face, running around trying to do LASIK on other people? So what are we then to do? Well, Jesus gives us a command in verse five. He says, first, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is not saying that the speck in our brother's eye doesn't matter. In fact, in verse 5, the whole purpose of our self-examination is to be able to see clearly enough to take the speck out of our brother's eye. Right? Jesus says, first take it out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he's not saying that we should look to help, he's not saying that we should not look to help other disciples be aware of their sin. What he is saying is that we must first examine ourselves before we examine others. If we do not assess ourselves appropriately, we may see sin in other people's lives, but we will rarely see it accurately, and we will always be hindered in helping them. So again, let's put the focus back on ourselves. Do we humbly examine our own lives? Are there any ways we are hypocritically condemning others for sins that we allow ourselves to indulge in? Or maybe on the other hand, are there any areas that we self-righteously judge others because it's an area that we think we're obedient? For example, maybe you have struggled, have struggled with finding grace for others who battle anxiety because that's just not something you've seen yourself struggle in significantly. Or maybe when you hear about someone else's struggle with pornography, you just can't understand their temptations because you just feel like I would never be tempted in that way. And you're tempted to self-righteously judge them. This was actually one of the ways that I was convicted as I prepared this sermon. I realized that I have sins with which I've struggled for years, and as a result, I have grace for people who struggle in a similar way. However, there are other areas where I don't tend to struggle, and in these areas, when other people sin, I tend to self-righteously condemn them instead of give them grace. I don't extend the same grace to them that I do to those who sin in the same ways as myself. For example, I've struggled with years for anger, and as a result, I have a lot of empathy and grace for those who struggle with anger as well. But on the other hand, I tend to be pretty punctual. And so if someone shows up 10 minutes late to a meeting with me, all I'm going to say is they better have a good reason. Maybe you treat others in a similar way. Maybe you have grace for sinners like yourself, but in areas in which you obey God, you criticize and condemn others. Jesus' point is not that we should remove the logs from our own eyes so that we can really come down hard on other people without being hypocritical. His point is that if we are clearly seeing our own sin and humbly putting it to death, we will be able to see clearly enough to actually help other people. And we will have an attitude that looks to genuinely care for them rather than self-righteously criticize them. This, this command doesn't just change the, our ability to help others. It changes the whole atmosphere. It gives us a new attitude that is positioned in humility to help others and look for their best rather than looking for faults in their behavior. However, it would be wrong to talk about all of this command to judge others well and humbly examine ourselves 
without acknowledging that our attempts to humbly examine ourselves are doomed to failure on our own. We will never be able to see ourselves clearly until we see ourselves in light of the cross. At the cross, we see the depths of our depravity. At the cross, we see the extent of our sinfulness. At the, cost, we, at the cross, we see the cost of our sinful judgments. At the cross, we see the damage of our self-righteous criticisms of others. At the cross, our sin looms large. But praise God, at the cross, God's grace looms larger. At the cross, we see that because of Christ, the measure we give is not always the measure we get. At the cross, we see that Christ's death paid for our self-righteous attitudes, prideful self-assessments, and sinful judgments. At the cross, we see that we have been freely given grace we don't deserve and righteousness that we could never earn. At the cross, we see both the grounds and the goal of a God-centered way of life. We see the grounds because Jesus' death makes a God-centered life possible. And we see the goal because the glory of God is the goal of a God-centered life. And the blazing center of that glory is Christ Jesus crucified. It's the pinnacle of God's glory revealed to us in Scripture, the, the Everest of the biblical Himalayas. There is nowhere other than the cross where we see God's glory so clearly revealed, where we see his love so clearly displayed, where we see his holiness so clearly upheld. At the cross, we see the full extent of our sinfulness. And at the cross, we see the full extent of our sinful judgments. But at the cross, we see God's grace and his mercy even more clearly on display. When we live within awareness of Christ's death on the cross, we will see ourselves rightly. We will be aware of the logs in our own eyes. And with the help of God's spirit, we can relate to others in a way that is glorifying to him. Humbly examining ourselves positions us to deal with others in a way that honors God. After Jesus' discussion of this, he moves on to a different way that, God-centered, that a God-centered way of living affects our relationships. And that brings us to our third point. Seeking God's honor guides how we deal with others. And we see this in verse 6. Jesus teaches us here that God's honor is the ultimate goal in our relationships with others and that it has implications for how we share the gospel with them. Now, I think if we're honest, when we read Matthew 7, most people read the first five verses, and they're like, oh, this is good stuff. This makes sense. The, the log illustration, I get it. And then they get to verse 6, and they're like, what in the world is going on here? It's just like a real hard left turn. Verse 6 isn't clearly connected to any of the surrounding verses, and it's given as a metaphor, unlike the verses around it. However, I think that with a little bit of context, you'll be able to understand what Jesus is saying and how it relates to the first five verses we've already talked about. Jesus says, Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. There are a few things that we need to understand about this verse before we can actually interpret it. Um, So first, our culture's view of dogs and pigs is very different than that of Jesus' Jewish hearers. Dogs are 
man's best friend in our culture. We think of our pets. But in the first century, they were wild and dangerous animals that roamed around in packs. And pigs were not farm animals that we like eating for breakfast. They were basically the quintessential unclean animal in Jewish culture. To Jesus' hearers, both pigs and dogs were repulsive, they were dangerous, and they were unclean. And Jesus is using them to represent people who are like that. Another thing to understand is that the two middle lines and the two last lines in this verse each correspond with each other. So Jesus is saying that when you give what is holy to dogs, they will turn and attack you. And when you throw pearls before pigs, they will trample them underfoot. And then finally, the most significant question we need to ask is, what does Jesus mean to represent by the pearls and the things that are holy? And here again, some context in the book of Matthew is important. In Matthew's gospel, the thing that is most sacred, the thing that is most holy, the thing that is most treasured and most precious is the kingdom of heaven and its message to the gospel. In fact, later in Matthew 13, Jesus will tell two different parables comparing the kingdom of God to a treasure hidden in a field and a pearl of great value. So what Jesus is referring to here is the holy message of the gospel. Jesus' point is that the gospel is too holy to be thrown around and trampled on. It's too precious to be treated like a ratty old t-shirt that you got in college, right? You think like, ah, it's, it's already too, too shrunken to fit me. It's got holes in it. Who cares if the dog chews on it? That is not how we treat the gospel. It's too valuable to be treated like table scraps for animals or like slop for pigs. And it's too precious to be given to people who we know will treat it like that. So what Jesus is saying is that we should not continue to present the gospel to certain types of people, people like these dogs and pigs. These are people who, after hearing the gospel and being given an opportunity to repent, have hearts which have hardened and calcified into callous indifference or scornful hostility. There are some people who are so hardened in their contempt of the kingdom of God that to present the gospel to them would only give an opportunity for it to be ridiculed, for God's reputation to be slandered, and for his disciples to be endangered. This is why Jesus includes this command after his prohibition against judging other people sinfully. Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount may have presented a danger for his disciples to judge other people sinfully. I think that's pretty obvious. When you give a bunch of standards, there are two things that are short. One, people won't live up to them. And two, other people will judge those people for not living up to them. But, but here, Jesus warns against an opposite danger than judging others sinfully. Given all that he has taught up to this point, his disciples might overcorrect, right? Overcompensate, judging no one at all and using no discernment in their attempts to help other people. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, Disciples exhorted to love their enemies in Matthew 5, and not to judge in Matthew 7, might fail to consider the subtleties of the argument and become undiscerning simpletons. This verse guards against such a possibility. Friends, we don't want to be undiscerning simpletons, not only because it's not a particularly flattering description, um, I mean, I don't know anyone who's ever self-identified as an undiscerning simpleton. <laughs> but more importantly, it can put us in danger, and it can dishonor God. Now, I think it's also important to note that we need to hold this command in tension with the commands we see in the rest of Matthew and the Bible as a whole. 
which clearly tell us to proclaim the gospel and the good news of Christ to all nations. In the overwhelming majority of places that the Bible speaks about sharing the gospel, God indicates that we are to share it freely with all people. So the principle seen in this verse should be taken as a rare exception to the general rule of making disciples of all nations. Because of this tension, applying this command requires a lot of discernment. In fact, I think this is one reason why Jesus couches it in the terms of a metaphor, and that's to emphasize the nuances and subtleties in applying it. Just to give one example, many of us know people who love Jesus, but who originally held him in contempt. It will take significant wisdom to discern the difference between someone who is stubbornly antagonistic, but listening with one ear, and another who is hardened, so hardened that they will only trample the gospel treasure and attack the one who presents it. So here are some thoughts on how we can apply this command. Hopefully, these can act as handles to help us really grasp how this actually affects our lives and how we can live in light of it. We need to understand that the people Jesus is referring to in verse 6 are those who are aware of the gospel and have rejected it. Jesus is not referring to those who have never heard of the gospel or are unaware of its message, or, or even those who have heard the gospel before but failed to respond to it. Jesus is referring to people who are hardened in their rejection of the gospel. And again, the overwhelming pattern in Scripture is one of sharing the gospel with all people in all nations. This means that just because someone has rejected your presentation of the gospel does not mean that you have thrown pearls before swine. It doesn't mean that you violated this command. In fact, just two chapters earlier in the Beatitudes, we see Jesus say that those who are reviled and persecuted and falsely slandered on his account are blessed. And he tells them that their reward is great in heaven. So clearly Jesus has a category in mind for someone who shares the gospel and sees it rejected and is still honoring God. It's also important to note that this principle is not a one-time use for each person. It's fluid and dynamic. Right? One of the fundamental realities of the gospel and the Bible is that God changes people. And praise God that he does or we would have no chance of being saved. Many people have been saved who were at one time hardened in the rejection to the gospel. Maybe even some of you in this room have that as your story. We should be continually applying this principle to assess our interactions with others because people and situations change over time. There may be people who would fall under this category at one point, but later their hearts have softened and it would honor God to share the gospel with them. So, how do we know when we are relating to others who have so rejected the gospel that it would be unwise to share it with them? I think it depends on a number of different factors, like the hardness of someone's heart, the situation and context, and the urgency of their need for the gospel. The more hardened a person's rejection and the greater their exposure to the gospel, the more likely it is that we are in a situation where continuing to offer the gospel to them simply exposes it and us to hostility. There may also be situations where it's appropriate to present the gospel to a person in one context, like maybe in a private one-on-one -on -one conversation, but in another larger group context, it would not be wise because the person's receptivity has basically disappeared because of fear of man or maybe the, the rejection and hostility that other people in the group have towards the gospel.
And regarding urgency, there may be people to whom presenting the gospel would typically be unwise. However, if that same person was on their deathbed, you would be absolutely right to present the gospel to them anyway because their need is so dire and they have no opportunity to repent in the future. And in the same way, the closer you are to a person relationally, the more likely it is that you will have further opportunities to share the gospel with them. So for close relationships, and especially with family members who have already heard the gospel many times from us and rejected it, it it may be wise to refrain from sharing it for a period of time if it will only antagonize them. So I've just covered a number of different factors and situations, but I hope that those thoughts are helpful in seeking to apply this command that Jesus gives us. There's a significant amount of nuance here, as we've already said, and we need God's wisdom to apply it. We may not always know how to apply this, but the one thing we can always do in any situation is pray. We can pray for wisdom, knowing that, like James says, God gives wisdom generously to all who ask for it without reproach. We can pray for the Holy Spirit to draw the person we are interacting with to Christ and soften his or her heart to the gospel. And most of all, we can pray that God would be glorified in our interactions with this person. And that's the bottom line, right? All of our relationships and all these commands Jesus gives us have the ultimate goal of glorifying God and honoring him. When we seek God's honor, it will guide how we deal with others. When we relate to others with a God-centered perspective, our interactions change. They will look drastically different than the way that the world interacts with others. Jesus is addressing his disciples first and foremost in the Sermon on the Mount. And in our passage, his example takes place between two brothers, two disciples. The place that should be most impacted and most affected by Jesus' commands here is the church. Having this God-centered way and view of life affect our evaluations of others will change more than just the attitudes of those in the church. It will change the atmosphere of the church as well. When we view others in light of God's judgment of us, we will see them as fellow sinners in need of grace. Rather than criticizing them or looking to find faults, we will extend the grace that we have received in Christ. When we look to help them, only after humbly examining ourselves, we will be able to actually care for them rather than criticize them and build them up rather than tear them down. When we seek God's honor in all of our relationships, we will be all the more amazed by God's grace and all the more motivated to extend that same grace that we've received to other people. The church will be a place where people come and feel like they can be truly known and truly know others rather than a place where they need to hide their sin and imperfections. And again, they can do this because they know that their fellow brothers and sisters are not out to get them or to nitpick their faults, but are for them and want their best. This God-centered vision of others transforms not only our lives, but the church into what God has truly intended for it to be. Let's pray as we close. Father, we have just heard a a weighty passage of Scripture with commands that are challenging to implement, challenging to apply, um, 
and really go against our sinful nature in every way. So Father, I pray that you would give us grace for others, grace to apply these commands, that the Holy Spirit would come and work through us to show grace to others, that it would give us discernment in how to interact with others when we share the gospel, that we would be aware of your judgment of us when we are thinking of interacting with others and and seeing sin in other people's lives. Father, make us people who are God-centered in our lives so that we can be God-glorifying in our relationships. Give us your grace. We, We need it, and we want to extend that grace to others. Make us people who glorify you in our interactions with each other. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Philip Bailey given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.